Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Katie Munoz. The founder of The City Beautiful didn't want black people living in Coral Gables. In the mid-1930s, George Merrick advocated in favor of a proposed Dade County Commission, quote, Negro Resettlement Plan. He also argued that the removal of black residents would be fundamental to achieving the goals for the rest of Miami. These are details documented in a Miami Hurricane article in July of 2020. Some students and faculty don't want that legacy to live on in the names of buildings on the University of Miami's campus. City commissioners in Coral Gables feel differently. The commission recently voted unanimously to honor Merrick with a Founders Day. Joining us to talk about the controversy and the complicated history behind the city founder is UM graduate Naomi Feinstein. She chronicled the documentation of Merrick's racist actions for the Miami Hurricane newspaper when she was a student. Welcome, Naomi. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Also joining us is Professor Tony Alfieri. He directs the Center for Ethics and Public Service at the UM School of Law. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Naomi, I wanted to start with you. You wrote your article after the death of George Floyd in the summer of 2020. And as people started to discover the evidence of George Merrick's past actions, how did students react to this? Yeah, so I remember it was right after the murder of George Floyd and I was kind of looking, all the other schools kind of around the country were kind of kind of dealing with this as well. And I remember specifically Princeton was dealing with the Woodrow Wilson building. So then I figured what's going on at UM campus and I found this little petition there wasn't much support then but as soon as they started publishing Mm -hmm. kind of this history of what Merrick was saying students were outraged um everyone was citing it people even people who were applying um current students everyone kind of wanted his name off the campus no one really felt connected to him in that way um but given his history no one seemed to really want his name on the um campus well and you mentioned the petition what do people who signed the um petition want to see done what are what are people asking for here even still i think they're purely just asking just not to have they don't i remember specifically when i was talking to students they said to me i don't see why we need to idolize racist people throughout our history we want to you want to say that you're inclusive that you accept all types of different people how can you have that if you have this name on campus? So purely just purely people wanted to see a commitment to to um, kind of going to handling racism and kind of showing that their acceptance of all of all types of different people. And thinking about what students and some faculty have asked for, has any of that materialized nearly two years later? So um, last year, I want to say right, right, maybe right after I graduated or right before they said they were removing the Merrick name from the Merrick garage, which is just one structure on campus. There's still Merrick Drive on campus. There's also still the Solomon G. Merrick building, which was named after George's father. But people still contend that was in honor of George and his father, but the university did not want, could not remove his name. Um, But just the, the name off the garage is currently the only thing that's been done. And Professor Alfieri, there's multiple sides to the argument to remove Merrick's name from university buildings. One is that it's a good thing to remove his name from prominence and visibility. The other argument is that removing his name is not going to help fight modern day racism. Or, you know, even further, there's the argument that racism is a part of our history and it should be in the forefront for people to remember, but not to glorify. What, What are your thoughts on that? Well, you ask a very important question, and in, in an 
important respects, Naomi's um, uh, hard work um, uh, on behalf of, uh, of this campaign um, uh, here and, and reproduced elsewhere across the nation um, on behalf of civil rights in 2022 um, somewhat distracts us from um, issues that Merrick, um, in fact, and you alluded to it, addressed in his, his, his now infamous uh, May 1937 speech um, before the Miami Realty Board, where he did call for, and I, I'll in fact read from page 11 of the speech, quote, a complete slum clearance uh, be made of, uh, effectively removing every Negro, Negro family uh, from the present day, uh, from the present city limits. Let me read it again. He calls for, and this is in, in, in his own words, a complete slum clearance be made effectively removing every Negro family from the present city limits. He identified this as the Miami Negro housing problem. And, um, and, and it, um, and it both reflects his recognition of what he also describes as the unfair conditions um, uh, affecting um, uh, uh, one third at that point in time in 1937 of the, of, uh, the um, black population in, in, in Miami. Uh, uh, but what's significant here is that he recognizes unfair conditions that continue to this day. Um, um, so, so, so I would suggest that while, while this is an important debate and at a debate that should continue at the same time, um, the debate needs to be reframed to focus on current land use and zoning policies um, at the city of Miami level and across the 34 municipalities including Coral Gables uh, that comprise Miami-Dade County, um, uh, policies that are having a disparate impact on predominantly Black um, and Afro-Caribbean neighborhoods that are resulting in mass evictions and displacements um, uh, of inner city populations, and, and, and policies that are also at the same time having what we call, um, under the Fair Housing Act of 1968, a segregative effect. And that is to say um, what, what listeners of WLRN understand um, uh, when they drive through Miami-Dade County. There is a, a, a segregative effect that is recreating, reinforcing, increase and in perpetuating segregated housing patterns. And as a result, segregated um, education patterns in, in elementary schools and middle schools and high schools and with with devastating health consequences and labor market consequences and therefore intergenerational consequences for, um, for African-American and Afro-Caribbean families in Miami. And I want to come back to the ripple effects of some of those policies and how they're affecting Miami today. <clears throat> but some of the things that you were reading from George Merrick from that speech, they're hard to listen to. They're really difficult to hear. You know, it, it, it's hard. Is it hard to carry that? And this, in, because in the same vein, he is the founder of Coral Gables. He's very embedded in the city, and without him, it wouldn't exist. The University of Miami might not exist 
either in the same way that it does today. So what should his role be in the city today, given his history? Uh, Naomi? Oh, yeah, I can answer that. Um, I think it's complicated because, yeah, like he did do great things for, for university, for the city. But at the same time, he has this history. And I read the editorial from the Miami Herald. And yeah, and they put up a great point. It's so nuanced. And I think you kind of if you want to have a statue, if you want to memorialize him or you want to have his name on the campus, put something there that maybe can highlight his controversial past. So I remember I spoke to a professor at UM, Taiwan Martin. And he was um, reminiscing about when he was at um, Indiana University in Bloomington, where there was a KKK mural in a classroom. And there was a whole controversy to remove it. Um, ultimately, they decided not to use the, the classroom anymore. Instead, it's just, just like a room. But they kept up the mural, kind of to show the history of the school. And they said that same thing. So if you said, if you're not going to remove the name from campus, put a plaque and say that although he's the founder, or, but he did advocate for the, this, for these segregation um, real estate plans. So I think, yeah, it's very nuanced. And I think you kind of have to address, if you're gonna address one thing about him, you gotta address the other. So I think that's kind of how I would probably answer that. And I should note, we did reach out directly to some members in the community to ask about this issue and get feedback and invite them to join our discussion. Two were unable to make it today. However, Sundial is planning future conversations with these affected members of the community in the near future. I'm speaking with Professor Tony Alfieri. He directs the Center for Ethics and Public Service at the UM School of Law. Also, UM graduate and former reporter for the Miami Hurricane, Naomi Feinstein, joins us. We're talking about the complicated and tainted legacy left behind by the founder of the city of Coral Gables, George Merrick. His segregationist past actions led the University of Miami to remove his name from a parking garage in 2021. And recently, city commissioners in Coral Gables voted to honor Merrick with a Founders Day. You can read more about that over on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Naomi, I want to ask you about that vote as well, because I'd play you tape from the meeting, but the agenda item was approved unanimously and without discussion. So what kind of impact does an action like this have for students that have been working to see changes at the University of Miami? I just think it's just kind of like a slap in the face because I feel like after the murder of George Floyd, there was kind of like this big push to kind of address a lot of issues on campus. Um, And I think there's a really good, large commitment by students to really kind of handle this like in full force and kind of be be more inclusive and, and like uncover these kind of racist histories. So I think yeah, I think students are going to be really upset. And I think hopefully this could kind of like fuel them to continue and not just keep quiet. Um, and I kind of, yeah, and I really think that it, this this won't go down quietly. They'll, they'll continue to fight it. Um, and I'm very curious to see how it kind of unfolds. And Professor, I want to I wanna ask you how some of the 1920s and 1930s beliefs held by Merrick while he was developing a large part of the county I'm just wondering if we can see the effect that that has on people living in Coral Gables today, because the population still stands at about 3% Black in the city. Right. Well, that, well, that is a good question. But, but two quick, quick footnotes um, for your listeners. Um, one is a, a number of um, schools, an increasing number of colleges and universities across the nation have undertaken um, uh, serious 
um, investigations into the role and function of their colleges and universities in, uh, in America's um, white supremacist and segregationist past. Uh, more, most recently Harvard, but previously um, Georgetown and Brown University and a number of others. So, so there, there are alternative pathways um, that uh, colleges and universities can pursue um, to, if you will, um, clear, um, clear the record um, uh, of, uh, of, of university participation in, in segregationist history. Um, the, the, other, the other footnote, and, and this is perhaps most important, um, is, is recognizing that, um, that uh, when muni municipalities honor um, individuals um, uh, who, in this case, Mr. George Merrick, born in 1886, in, in one of the most um, vicious periods of white supremacy in American history, this is the period um, following Reconstruction, uh, with the introduction of uh, Black Codes and then um, Jim Crow um, uh, laws throughout the South and in, indeed across the Midwest and, and, in, and, and in parts of the North as well. And, 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 and it, while it is important to situate him within that history, um, it's also important to recognize the, the absence of any kind of um, a memorial beyond beyond a plaque, and Naomi makes a good point um, with respect to plaques and 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 and, and honoring um, populations. But but for example, um, there there um, uh, are are scores of Afro Caribbean and Afro African American populations, particularly Bahamian populations and populations from the deep south that fled the violence of, of the Ku Klux Klan to migrate to Miami, to migrate to Coral Gables, to migrate particularly to the East Gables, which was which we, we often we now recognize as part of um, uh, Coconut Grove Village West, but is in fact the East Gables. And, and the overarching point here is to honor um, uh, uh, those people, to honor people who um, who continue to work, for example, in Village West of Coconut Grove. Um, yeah, uh, I want to ask you about that for a moment, because you know Reverend Nathaniel Robinson of the Greater St. Paul AME Church in Coconut Grove Village West. He wanted to join us today, but unfortunately he couldn't. Uh, can you tell us about his role in this community? Well, he is one of the uh, important um, uh, uh, y young leaders um, who are, and in, in his case, he is one of the founders uh, with, 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 with other um, clergy and nonprofit and civic leaders in Village West of Coconut Grove, who recently created uh, GRACE, which is Grove Rights and Community Equity, a new nonprofit, precisely to address these issues, not only of cultural and historic preservation, of, of housing and uh, homeowners and tenants of color, uh, but but also to try to uh, redevelop um, these communities in order to enable you know residents, longtime residents, and previously displaced residents to return, and that's why this part of this conversation should be connected to at the city of Coral Gables and throughout the county to issues of again um, displacement. 
of resegregation, of municipal equity in terms of economic development, and um, and 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 ultimately, and this is consistent with the mission and goal of the Fair Housing Act in 1968, to integrate um, Miami-Dade County and 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 South Florida, um, because that becomes the crucial issue. Um, segregation, as as you know, um, has has uh, terribly damaging effects, um, not only in education, uh, but also in upward mobility, in, um, in neighborhood health effects, um, in, in access to labor markets. And it's a, it's a, par- a parade of horribles, but, but that's why the city of Coral Gables and other municipalities ought to be working with um, generations of new and old leaders in places like Village West on affordable housing, on low-income housing, on workforce housing, um, in in a collaborative spirit that tries to overcome the white supremacist and segregation segregationist history of of um, of people like George Merritt. Yeah, and and Professor, what does the City Commission's recent vote or really recent inaction to reacting to the city's segregationist history say to you? Well. Um, it says that, well, it signals that the city is struggling in attempting to not only confront this history, but to move forward in a way that, and, and again, this is, this is crucial, that recognizes the contributions of generations of Afro-Caribbean and African-American um, uh, families who contributed to uh, the building of the great city of Coral Gables and Miami-Dade County. And it's, it, it, is, it is essential that the city and all of the municipalities, because this, 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 this challenge is, is, is common and widely shared, it is important for all of these muni- municipalities to um, to not only try to address and remedy these issues, but also uh, recognize and affirm and honor those who are absent from the history. So, so in a sense, what the city of Coral Gables and other cities need to do across the, the nation is expand expand their imagination and include those who are missing and those who are absent and make them present so that we can honor in an inclusive way and a truly diverse way the contributions of of an entire community. And Naomi, briefly, I know we're looking at this hyper-local story, but you mentioned, and this is something that's happening nationally, even in other countries, grappling with painful histories. I was wondering, do you have any messages uh, for students and communities who are frustrated and, and wanna see some change? Oh yeah, that's tough because yeah, it's it's easier said than done. Just tell them to keep fighting and like kind of because it. Did you look at the UM kind of? It kind of took a while, but it it worked. Obviously, kind of not what they wanted. They kind of wanted to be on just a parking garage, but I think just continue to get your word out and continue looking into history and and almost almost educate people about the history and the past because yeah, it is really hard and it is really to get yeah really hard to get like changes from these big powerful institutions. But I think 
you have to be really committed to it because change won't really happen in a day, obviously not to be cliche, but you just really have to be committed to it and just continue to raise awareness, get your voice out there. And most importantly, produce like the facts in terms of like, but this Merrick stuff in terms of all of the, the support for the petition, people saw it with their own eyes, what he, what he said, and also the advertisements. And I think that really got people outraged. So I think if you can really find the proof and show people, look, this is what this person said or what they advocated for, people will probably be outraged and probably would want to institute some changes. I want to thank Naomi Feinstein, UM graduate and a recent Columbia journalism graduate as well, a former reporter for the Miami Hurricane. Thanks for joining us, Naomi. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. I also want to thank you, Professor Tony Alfieri, Director of the Center for Ethics and Public Service at the University of Miami School of Law. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. And we're hearing from our listeners on Twitter, too. Ian on Twitter links this story to the housing issue, saying, quote, Beyond removing Merrick's name, the real work is reforming land use and zoning to work for all. Exclusionary single-family home zoning affects everyone, and this is a larger factor in why housing costs are so high all across Miami-Dade. You can stay in touch with us and let us know your thoughts by joining our Sundial text club. So send us what you're thinking. Any comments or questions, just text the word JOIN to 786-677-0767. That's JOIN to 786-677-0767. Still to come, a doctor based in Miami had a hand in curing the third known person ever of HIV, and we talk to her next. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Katie Munoz. Luis Hernandez is out today. A cancer patient appears to be the third person to ever be cured of HIV. The woman achieved remission through a new strategy that could lead to a potential widespread cure for the virus. Dr. Savita Pawa is the director of the University of Miami Center for AIDS Research. Her lab was involved with the national research team that worked on this new treatment. Dr. Pawa has been called a veteran HIV and AIDS researcher, and she started her career in the 80s, near the start of the HIV crisis. She joins us now. Welcome, Dr. Pawa. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. I want to start by looking back at the beginning of your career, if that's okay. You were working with children as a pediatrician, again, at a time when this virus was so new, making headlines. What do you remember about that time? Oh, a lot. So I was uh, enamored with immunology, even as a medical student in India, in Lady Harding Medical College, though I knew very little about it. It prompted me to come to USA for research opportunities. And here I had the good fortune to be trained under Robert Good, a pioneer in immunology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. From him, I learned many important lessons. One of them being, listen to your patients. They are your best teachers. Now about your question about my career in pediatric HIV, I think I'm passionate about this research because I encountered it in the formative years of my career. I ran the pediatric uh, immunology program at North Shore University Hospital in Long Island, New York, when the first cases of babies with HIV started trickling in. 
they were infected from passage of virus from their infected mothers. I was puzzled, alarmed, and fascinated at the same time. These children presented an apparent paradox. They were different from the kind of immune deficiency I knew about. Unlike the ones I was familiar with, these kids had signs of an exuberant immune response with enlarged lymph nodes and high HIV antibodies, and yet they were immune deficient and nearly half died within two years, usually due to infections. Well, let me ask you, what, this, what yeah. kind of conversations were you having with the parents and the guardians of these children infected with HIV then? It, yes, it was a very difficult time. One, one discussion always was, should you tell the child or not that they are infected or not? And second was uh, to learn uh, or to really to educate uh, people around you that uh, who were really treating, um, who, who uh, just wouldn't go near these kids. And even the janitors wouldn't go into their rooms to clean the rooms. It was really hard. And the parents, I always told them, keep hope because there's research going on and there will be treatment. And treatment did come, you know, it came first in the form of the drug AZT, which, um, which was the first drug against HIV. And even though, you know, it wasn't that effective as a single drug, it was the basis for a landmark study uh, called BACTGO75, which showed that drugs like that can lower your mother's virus load will prevent transmission of the virus from infected pregnant women to their infants. Yeah, I think that's, it, that's important to ask about for a moment because there are ways now. I mean, we've come so far from the beginning of the HIV and AIDS crisis. You know, there are ways to help a mom prevent passing the virus onto her child in utero, uh, right? Absolutely. You can prevent it to zero percent if you can really suppress the virus in the mother. And uh, the challenges were there in the beginning, but now we have such effective antiretroviral therapy called ART that you can really suppress the virus and prevent transmission. But cases do fall through the cracks and you still get a few infected children in the United States. But where the problem really exists now for kids and pregnant women uh, is in uh, countries like in of sub-Saharan Africa, you know, where 90% of the HIV-infected children are really residing. And of, of, given some yeah. of these advancements, you know, I'm sure there are still obstacles to overcome for prevention, like stigma or access to treatment. How do you deal with those today? Well, uh, stigma is there, misconceptions about HIV transmission are there, but uh, in we have a very active program in our uh, CIFAR uh, to try and dispel ignorance. The stigma is usually related to just lack of knowledge about HIV transmission and, uh, um, you know, misconceptions uh, persist to this day, but they are getting much, much less. And uh, we deal with it through community interaction and, uh, and uh, you know, through programs to prevent HIV, um, such as 
the ending the HIV epidemic movement, which is, um, you know, a huge movement now. Uh, it's a movement it was, you've uh, been a part of helping recently. You were recently part of this national research team that helped a patient become the third person ever yeah. to achieve remission from HIV. And, and I wonder if we could start talking about that first by just you know, saying what remission from the virus means. Yeah, okay, that's a really good question. So one can think of the word remission and one can think of the word cure. In both instances, it's essential that the patient is off antiretroviral drugs. So they're not taking any treatment and the virus isn't rebounding. And in terms of remission, there may still be evidence of virus if you were to do incisive tests, but it's not being coming out into the system. So in a way, it's something like a cure. And that's really what we are achieving with the new antiretroviral drugs that can bring the virus load down to almost nothing, non-detectable. And But cure means that there is no evidence. And when I say no evidence, it's because, you know, HIV is a very tricky and stealthy virus. Not only does it infect very important cells, but it resides in what we call reservoirs. And these reservoirs get activated and the virus comes back. So you've got to get rid of the virus from the reservoirs, and that would be called a cure. And so if we're thinking about the treatment that this patient received um, compared to maybe other treatments that exist today, the pills that will help you get to undetectable, um, but this treatment, how is it different? Can you tell us what the patient went through? Of course. So this treatment involves what we call stem cell transplant. And stem cell transplants are usually given for people with uh, malignancies. And so this patient was diagnosed with HIV in New York and, for, and started on ART. And then four years later, she developed uh, acute myelogenous leukemia and she needed a cord blood transplant. And so- And when you say cord this, blood, that, that would uh, be she umbilical needed a transplant. cord blood. Yeah, no, no, she needed a stem cell transplant. Okay. I misspoke, that's what she needed for her cancer. So now here comes the novelty of the approach. This was a concept uh, that was proposed by Dr. Yvonne Bryson from UCLA uh, almost more than a decade ago, that why not use cord blood cells, umbilical cord blood cells for transplant and use ones which are missing, which will make you resistant to HIV because they are missing an essential receptor, which the virus needs to latch on in order to infect the target cells. So um, I was immediately really excited when I heard about this concept and joined the team as the protocol immunologist. And to me, the concept was brilliant. It was almost a no-brainer. You're trying to make a person's uh, whole immune system be repopulated with cells that are resistant to HIV. And, and this, but so the key was to use these umbilical cord blood cells that are missing this molecule. And only about 1% of Northern European Caucasians are deficient in this molecule. 
and it's really rare. But there is a blood bank in a California stem site that specially types for this uh, the cord bloods for this uh, mutation and banks CCR5 negative cord blood cells. So these were the cells that were used for this woman who is, um, you know, for the treatment of her acute myelogenous leukemia with the intention that not only would you cure her cancer, but also cure her HIV. And, and, uh, and, and clawed blood, I must add, is a very rich source of stem cells. And usually people don't use stems, these cord bloods for adults because there are not enough stem cells there. They use adult stem cells that you get either from the bone marrow or blood from matched, uh, histocompatibility matched donors. But, but here um, it was because we have them typed and we had them ready, uh, this was used in this patient. And so what do you believe that this breakthrough means for the future of HIV treatment and even a cure one day? Yeah, I think uh, this is um, a, a very important milestone. There have only been three people uh, who have been cured by interventions like this. And uh, what this patient provided us is uh, a roadmap, let's say or a proof of concept that removing CCR5 from the body can potentially lead to a cure. So many researchers are now doing experiments to ablate this molecule from target cells experimentally by genetic manipulations. Wow. And thus, once ready, gene strategies, gene therapy would have the promise of a really wider application. You want something that is scalable. You can't give this transplant to everybody. It's only going to be restricted to people with HIV and cancer. But people don't even use it for that. So I would say this points a path to at least anybody with HIV and cancer to try and get a cord blood cell um, match. And, and cord blood cells are much easier to match than blood, than adult blood cells because they're more forgiving. They don't cause what is called graft versus host disease so readily. And so they can engraft almost completely much more easily than adult cells. And I'm afraid and, we're going to have to leave it there, doctor. Okay. We will have to have okay. you back. This is fascinating, especially because Florida is the state that still has the highest yes. new infection rate of HIV cases. So That's thank you so true. much for sharing your research okay. with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. That was Dr. Savita Pawa. She is the director of the University of Miami's Center for AIDS Research. And still to come, removing pythons and using their eggs for cookie recipes. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Katie Munoz. Luis Hernandez is out today. And today we are talking with a superhero. Donna Khalil is on the Everglades Avenger team. She's helping save our ecosystem by eliminating a huge threat, Burmese pythons. This invasive species can reach a length of 26 feet. And wait for it, one snake can weigh more than 200 pounds. That's terrifying. 
These Jurassic-like creatures are, in part, responsible for the decline of important native animal populations. And Donna joins us for this week's Wildlife Thursday conversation. Thanks for joining us, Donna. Thank you for having me. You caught your very first python on Christmas Day, Christmas night, really, back in 2015. So take me with you there. What was that moment like? <laughs> well, yeah, we were uh, we had just gone out uh, to dinner, and uh, after dinner, we decided to uh, take a drive into the Everglades to look for pythons because that's something I'd like to do. And uh, we were driving into all hours of the night. It was about midnight, and we decided, ah, oh, we're not going to find anything out here. So we turned around and started coming home. And um, there was one right in the middle of the street. So we stopped and uh, I wound up uh, grabbing it by the tail because it uh, it nearly got away from us. It was it was taking off off the road and um, the, <clears throat> the fight pursued. And uh, yeah, I was able to um, catch it and uh, bag it up. And I called uh, 188, I've got one to try to let them know that I had one so I could give it to a, an officer because I wasn't a contractor at the time. Um, but nobody was answering. So we did bring it home, which now I know is illegal to do if you don't have permits. So just for everybody's knowledge, don't don't bag up pythons and bring them anywhere. It is illegal to do that. Uh, but I did call uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife and reported it. And uh, and, you know, they they let me know that um, that they did not want it if it was if it was dead. So we had euthanized it, and um, so I was able to keep it. And now I have the uh, the skin up on the wall. Oh my so, gosh, what a Christmas! And your family was with you, right? Yes, yes. Uh, my husband Craig, my daughter and uh, Deanna, my son Christopher, and my nephew uh, uh, Sean Dollard. We were all there in 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 the car when when it happened. So that was the very first python. And uh, it was 12 feet long, so it was a it was a good fight. And um, since then, I've caught over 600. Now that I am a contractor with South Florida Water Management District. Well, and I, I've got to ask. I mean, it might have been a Christmas miracle, but can't they be very hard to find? They're very good at hiding. They're very hard to find. I actually went about it wrong for about 10 years um, prior to that. I was on foot searching through uh through through the uh the everglades and big cypress national park and never did come across one and it was like a christmas miracle because it was right there in front of us you know it was just boom right there and we had just turned around maybe five minutes ago uh on the on us 41 and um and it wasn't there when we drove past it and uh it was so what they do they move they and that is how we catch them and uh, i know you wanted to hear a little bit about that um, we do go out uh, into the Everglades generally at night most of most of the year, and we hunt um, in our vehicles. We have about 100 contractors right now, um, and we do hunt along levees and roads and wait for them to come out, and they're hunting. So we are hunting the hunters, and um, once we once we see one. We stop, and my technique is um, I do approach them very quietly, slowly, from behind, don't make a shadow. Um, and then you could literally, if you do it right, you can get right up to their head and you grab them quickly right behind the head before they try to take off. And then and then this fun begins, you know, depending on the size of the snake, it can be very easy. Uh, you know, they come in about two and a half feet when they're small little babies coming out of their eggs. That's actually not small for a snake, it's two and a half feet. 
Um, that's what they start out as, and they can get up to um, 18, 19 feet is the tops. I think what you were referring to, the 20, 26 pound is uh, 26 footer is is uh, is not the Burmese python. It's the reticulated python, and thankfully we don't have reticulated pythons here, or or anacondas or any other giant snakes. Uh, the only giant snake that has taken over the Everglades is the Burmese python. Oh, I'm and, glad uh, you corrected me. The largest me, on yeah. record right now. Yeah, larger largest record on right, right now is uh, 18.9 uh, feet, and uh, caught by Kevin Pavlidis, who was uh, one of my um, uh, volunteers and got into the program, and Ryan Osborne. They they were the ones that captured that big one. And I want to just check. So when you say we go out and, and hunt at night, hunt the hunters at night, you're referring to the Everglades Avenger team that's dedicated to eliminating invasive Burmese pythons. Yes. So the Everglades Avengers team is is my team of volunteers. And uh, actually, several of them became contractors. Uh both South Florida Water Management District and Florida Fish and Wildlife both have contractors that are out there. There's 100 uh, contractors uh, total, about uh, 15 women, and several of those I did get into the, I helped get into the program. I'm very proud of that. And um, yeah, my Everglades Avengers are, are my team, my my volunteers, and um, yeah, and, and also uh, some contractors that still wear my t-shirts. <laughs> Well, and I want to ask, because you actually grew up here in South Florida, so you've seen the before and the after of this python issue. So yes. what are those changes that you've seen over time? Right. So growing up down here, um, my parents would take me out into the Everglades and, and you know, go fishing and just see the wildlife and the beauty of, of the Everglades. And, you know, as a kid, I'd count as many as many rabbits as I could on the way down. And um you know, just couldn't count as many rabbits as there were. They were just, they were everywhere. And unfortunately, roadkill from, you know, opossums and raccoons the night before. And now um, I, I do hunt uh, in Everglades National Park and uh, and on these roads anywhere in South Florida, you won't see any roadkill. Um, you won't see any rabbits. Uh, they're pretty much all gone. And, um, you know, that that is basically a, a big part of it, uh, if not most of it is because of uh, the Burmese python. Well, and this this might be a tough question, but if a female python can lay anywhere between 50 to 100 eggs, is it even possible to completely eradicate them from South Florida? Most likely not. Um, we are trying our best. Um, and what I'd like to say is, you know, we have 100 contractors. Uh, there's guesstimates, and I say guesstimate because it is just a guess, um, of, you know, 100,000 pythons out there. Um, and they've been out there since the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, we've only been out there five years and we've caught almost 8,000 already. So we're making a dent in the, in the population that we can get to. And uh, we are, you know, with every single one that we remove, um, that makes a difference to every single native animal that those pythons would have would have eaten if we left them out there. And yes, you know, they do have uh, they do have a lot of eggs um, per year, once per year. And um, fortunately, we do have help with our native uh, birds like the uh, great white heron, great blue heron, um, the wood stork, those those birds can take them out uh, as hatchlings. Um, uh, and then the alligators, I believe, have learned how to uh, how to take them on. But, you know, with the alligator, it really depends on which one is larger. 
you know, uh, I've, I've saved a couple of alligators from uh, pythons trying to eat them. And I've also seen alligators eating pythons. So it goes either way, depending on their size. Well, and I know you've also been outspoken about educating people on being a responsible pet owner. So you're not talking about puppies and kittens. Um, You mean people who have these exotic pets like pythons that are sometimes invasive. So what is your message for them? Well, let me let me backstep a little bit. I I, all animals, uh, puppies and kittens turn up to be dogs and cats. And if you let them go out in the Everglades, they wreak havoc in where you let them go. So it's never a good idea to let any animal go. Cats, dogs, birds, fish, reptiles. We have them in Miami. We have all sorts of exotic animals. We have all sorts of issues with released pets, or actually I I would rather say abandoned pets. It's not a good thing to do. It's not the responsible thing to do. Um, It's much more responsible to find a new home for them or, uh, you know, give them up to authorities so that they can Uh, deal with them accordingly. And I have to ask you, because you are also known for doing more with pythons than simply hunting them, you've used their eggs in the kitchen, and I need to know more about that. Well, let me preface it by saying uh, there is a a study being done right now, um, and the results are not out, in reference to the mercury content. And as we No, um, we've kind of damaged our environment bad enough to the point where we really have to be careful what we eat out of the environment, and that includes pythons um, and python eggs. So uh, I've caught over 600. Um, I've eaten about a dozen. Um, I do, uh, you know, I do uh, try to use the python as as much as I can. So if I'm eating a python cookie or python egg cookies, um, you know, I'm not going to eat tuna cookies. Yes. So it's the eggs of the python I use in the, my recipes to, to make cookies. <laughs> oh, I love it. Wow. What, how, what, what do those taste Sometimes, like? Sometimes, not always, okay? It's not <laughs> something I do always. But uh, a lot of people want to try them. You know, they want to say, oh, hey, python cookies. You know, so uh, yeah, I'll oblige sometimes. <laughs> do they taste different than regular chocolate chip cookies? Not at all. No, you, you cannot tell the difference. <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, and I was going to ask you about the mercury content. So do you must have to be a little careful, like somebody eating sushi or or considering that? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, this is the first animal that I've had to uh, have to euthanize uh, without eating. I, I used to spearfish and, and catch lobsters, still do. Um, and, you know, when I'm killing an animal, I'm eating an animal. I am not killing an animal not to eat it. So when I had to start doing that with pythons, it's like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to try to eat a python and see what it tastes like. And um, it actually, it's it's a fine white meat, um, really doesn't have much flavor at all. So you really have to season it um, accordingly. But again, the mercury, um, you, you don't want to eat a 15-foot python. You want to stay with maybe a seven, seven and a half foot python. And again, I wouldn't recommend eating them on a on a regular basis. But if it's something you want to try, kind of like fugu sushi, you know, it's, it's something somebody might want to try, you know. So um, every once in a while, you know, great, but um, wouldn't make it a part of your diet. So it sounds like your cookbook is not going to be released until the mercury study comes out. But uh, exactly. are exactly. you compiling these recipes? 
It may be more like a, a picture book of my catches or something and maybe a recipe or two thrown in. <laughs> well, you also hunt and cook chicken of the trees um, or yes. iguanas. Yes. And I just wonder, you know, using these animals as a source of food, as you mentioned, it might surprise people, but does it change the way that you see these animals and their purpose in the South Florida ecosystem? Oh, wow. That would be, that would be interesting to see the purpose differently than how I do. Um, the, the, you're talking about uh, iguanas now. Um, they are a nuisance. Uh, they are dangerous. Uh, you know, they do uh, um, carry sal- salmonella or sal- one of the two. I'm sorry. I forgot which, but uh, it, it can, they can spread diseases if they're pooping in your pool. It's a horrible thing. Um, so they're a nuisance, and uh, my brother included has a business down in the Keys, uh, removing them from people's homes and, and businesses. And yes, what, what's fantastic about the iguanas is you can use them as a food source. They do not have um, mercury in them, and they taste like chicken, chicken of the trees. Oh so, man, we'll, we'll have to have your brother on for a future Wildlife Thursday conversation absolutely. now. He's got some really good recipes. We might have to go go in cahoots cahoots on the uh, recipe book. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Donna Khalil, a python elimination specialist in South Florida. We're going to have to leave it there for now. I appreciate the, the call. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's Sundial for this wild Thursday, May 19th, 2022. Coming up next week on the program, Florida lawmakers are headed back to Tallahassee again for a special legislative session to try to deal with rising property insurance rates. We're going to check in on what ideas they're considering to help your coverage and your bill. I'm Katie Munoz. Thank you so much for listening today. The program is made possible in part by support from the Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.